Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. You remember the reason that John is writing? John has clearly stated in John 20, verse 31, we have them on our banners. These things have been written uh, to prove to you that Jesus is who he claims to be and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. That's why John is writing his gospel. Hopefully, on the one hand, hopefully you get tired of me saying that because I say it all the time, but hopefully you don't get tired of it because we need to know John's purpose statement. Everything that he does in this gospel, everything that he writes down in this gospel is written for that purpose. These things have been written so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in his name. If you go to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, last week we looked at the first sign that Jesus did, the turning of water into wine. And you can see in verse 11, John says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples what? His disciples believed in him. Now, if you go down to the end of the passage we're going to look at this morning, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they what? They believed. They believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. John is on task. He's on point. And he's constantly giving us narratives and accounts of Jesus's life that will help us to believe. One of the things that he's going to do, though, at the end of this chapter, we're going to look at it next week, Lord willing. There's three short verses that we're going to look at next week, but they're super important. They seem like an aside. They actually could fit in the message that we are looking at this morning, the the passage we're looking at this morning. But it deserves its own message because what John is going to do is he's going to be saying, everybody's believing, everybody's believing, everybody's believing in Jesus. And then at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he's going to say, but there are two types of belief. He's not happy that we believe in Jesus. That's not the goal. The goal is that we have a right belief in Jesus. And so he's clearly going to lay out for us, there's two types of believing in Jesus. It's not enough to believe in Jesus. You have to ask, what kind of belief is it? That's why Nicodemus is going to come in chapter 3 And he's going to say, I believe that you are a prophet sent by God. I believe you are who you claim to be. You're probably God, very God. I believe that. And yet Nicodemus was not saved. And so John's going to give us, in fact, just turn there really quickly. The end of John chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So you say, well, that's great, John. That's the whole goal, belief in Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. It's interesting, that word entrusting is the exact same word in the Greek for believed in verse 23. Many believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. They believed in him, but he did not believe in their belief. Why? Because he knew all men. Verse 25, and because... He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew they were believing him. Like we talked about last week, they saw the sign as we see our kids when we say, look at the butterfly, and we point, and they stare at our finger. No, 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 look at the butterfly. I'm pointing to get you to look at something else, and they terminate on the finger instead of terminating on what we're pointing to. The majority of the people in Jesus' day looked at him, said, you have to be the Son of God, you have to be God, very God, and I believe that. And when John says that Jesus knew what was in man, remember chapter breaks 
weren't there in the original. It just was one long scroll. So John writes, he knew all men, and he didn't need anyone to testify because he knew what was in man. Now there was a man, a Pharisee, and he's going to move right into what true saving belief is, regeneration, the new birth, and he's going to tell us what true unbelief looks like, or false belief, if you will. So that'll be next week and on into the fall, because next week will be our last week looking at John, and then we'll dive into our summer through the Psalms. So that's a little bit of a roadmap. But here we find ourselves in chapter 2, two signs, uh, really two miracles that Jesus is going to do, two proofs of his authority, two proofs of his divinity. The first one is in a small place, probably a handful of people, maybe a dozen or more, live in Cana, tiny little town. And Jesus, for a small group of people, with compassion and love, demonstrates his deity by turning water into wine. Now he's going to go to Jerusalem and do what we know as the cleansing of the temple. This is the exact opposite of what happened with turning the water into wine. When he turned the water into wine, it was a small group of people. When he's cleansing the temple, over two million people are in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. It was a very sweet, kind, compassionate gesture at the beginning of this chapter with the turning of the water into wine. It's going to be a harsh, it's going to be a a difficult, um, hard-to-swallow act that he is going to uh, show us today. But they are both written and both performed and both lived out by our Savior for the purpose of believing that he is the Son of God. As I read through this passage and I was studying it this week, it reminded me of a, of a, a section in C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, the, the Pevensey kids are, uh, a couple of them are exiting the, the narrative. It's been an amazing story. It's been an amazing account filled with adventure and wonder. And they come to the beginning of where Aslan's country is. Aslan is a representation of Jesus Christ. They come to the edge of his um, country and it's just beautiful grass everywhere and and they see a little lamb making a, a fish breakfast for them. And they walk up. I always think that C.S. Lewis must be thinking of the end of John when Jesus made a fish breakfast for his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead. And they go up to him. They start speaking with him. And as they're speaking with him, discussing how to get to Aslan's home, how to get to heaven, C.S. Lewis writes this, The lamb's snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself, a lion, towering above them, scattering light from his mane. There's a little lamb that they went up, oh, precious little lamb, and then he blossomed into a lion, as it were. He changed into a lion. We've seen this a couple times in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He has um, amazing character qualities that are 100% true of who he is at the exact same time. And so this passage, it's almost as if In chapter 2, we've moved from a a lamb-like state, gentle, compassionate, quiet, and to a lion-like state here in cleansing the temple. Last week, we saw the tender-heartedness, and now we're going to see the toughness of our Savior. For an outline for you this morning, we're just going to look at three things in this account. Number one, we're going to look at the cleansing of the temple. Number two, we're going to look at the confrontation of the Jews. And number three, we're going to look at the belief of the disciples. So just those three as we go through to give us a bit of an outline. Let's start in verse 12 
And we will watch Jesus be the lamb-like lion and the lion-like lamb that he truly is. Verse 12, after this, after the wedding in Cana and the miracle that he performed, Jesus went down to Capernaum about 60 miles away, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. So they moved from Cana to Capernaum about 60 miles away. Now you remember, what is Jesus' hometown? It's Nazareth. Nazareth is a cul-de-sac. Remember we talked about it's just a dead end. Not many people live there. Not many people travel there for any reason other than to see their family. And so Jesus is going to ultimately make his hometown Capernaum. He's going to shift from Nazareth to a a hub. Capernaum is right above the Sea of Galilee, and every major road came into Capernaum. So if you were in Capernaum, you had access to the entire world, the entire known world at that time. Jesus is going to do what Paul does. Whenever Paul goes into a city, he goes to the major uh, metropolitan area because he wants to get the biggest, most influential part of the city. And then by getting that part of the city, they can trickle down into other lesser cities, other smaller cities. Jesus is going to go to Capernaum. He's going to make his um, headquarters there with his disciples so that he can develop a hub for the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. They stay there a few days, but then, verse 13, they have to go to Jerusalem. The Passover of the Jews is near. This happened once a year, remembering um, God passing over, the angel of death passing over the Israelites when they were in Egypt with the blood that was from the slain lamb on the doorposts. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's a journey going up. He's going down, technically, from Capernaum to Jerusalem, but he's going up um, in elevation And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. So he's moving into this Passover in Jerusalem and he finds a bustle and a a hubbub going on. He finds chaos. Now we know that Jerusalem would have been pure chaos to begin with. Um, Josephus tells us that there were about 300,000 people living in Jerusalem during the normal times of the year. But when Passover came, this is a festival, it's a feast, that the Jews had to be in Jerusalem for. And so over 2 million people, writes Josephus, would make a voyage there and would stay in the city or on the outskirts. So from 300,000 to 2 million. Um, He says there were over 250,000 lambs slaughtered for Passover during this festival. And since you could attribute one lamb to ten people um, based on the religious laws, you can get two and a half million um, if you want to go that far. The bottom line is this is chaos. He walks in to the temple where there are supposed to be worshipers and instead he finds people selling oxen, sheep, doves, money changers seated at their tables. This is what's known as the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was a religious leader, and he made a system, and Josephus refers to it as a bazaar, where he would sell things. It was a wicked system. Um, This is what he would do. If you were going to sacrifice your lamb, what does the lamb have to have as its quality? It has to be spotless, perfect, without blemish. So you would take your lamb to the temple, and the priest would have to check the lamb out, make sure this lamb is worthy of being the spotless, without blemish lamb that can atone for your sins. And so as you took your lamb, they thought, you know, this is going to be a perfect way to make some money. Um, Corrupt, 
hypocritical religious system. This is what they said. No matter what the lamb looked like, even if it was spotless, they would say, you know what? I'm sorry. I found a blemish. It's a blemish that you probably don't even know about. It's a blemish that you can't even see. I found a blemish. I'm really sorry. You're going to have to buy one of our sheep um, if you really want to sacrifice a lamb and be right with God. So naturally, a good Jew would say, okay, I'll buy your sheep. Sorry, it's a million dollars, but we'll do a trade-in, right? Kind of like you can do at Best Buy with your iPads and iPhones. We'll do a trade-in. Um, how about this for a trade-in? We'll give you a cent for your lamb, and then you have to pay a million dollars to us. It was just extortion. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the lamb. And here's what Josephus tells us that is the most ironic and, and sick, twisted part of it. They would take that lamb. Let's say the Nixes were giving their lamb um, to, to see if it was without blemish, and I'm the corrupt uh, religious leader, and I would say, I'm sorry, your lamb is not spotless. Here, let me give you a new lamb. We'll trade your lamb in. We'll find a way to would deal with it. And then the Evans come, and they say, we have a lamb. I would give them the Nix's lamb and say, I'm sorry, your lamb is not spotless, but my lamb here, we'll trade it in. So they just kept on taking in lambs and selling them, reselling them. Uh, it's worse than regifting at Christmas. They were absolutely corrupt. And so Jesus is going to call them out on that. They also had money changers who were changing uh, the temple tax. They couldn't have coins that had faces of people, so they made their own coin. They couldn't have graven images, so they decided to make their own coin. And it was a temple coin, so they always had to change money. No matter who you are or where you are from, you had to change your money. And uh, Josephus tells us that the exchange rate was probably over 15%. Um, So this is just corruption. It's pure corruption. Jesus sees that. Verse 15, he makes a scourge of cords. Some Bibles say a whip. These are probably from uh, maybe the ropes that were holding boxes or the ropes that were holding some of the animals, the oxen. But regardless, he makes a whip and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their their tables. The only way that that I could picture this in my mind. This is insanity happening right now. And the only way I could picture this, if you've ever done Black Friday before in a store, you think, I am like head and shoulders above people, and I still think I'm going to be trampled. I'm still like, I don't have enough oxygen as I'm walking through the masses. I mean, this is just insanity. Millions of people trying to funnel into the Temple Mount with all these animals, with all of the smells, sights, sounds, everything going on. And Jesus somehow gets a, a cords, puts, puts them into the form of a scourge or a whip, and starts driving everyone. It says in verse 15, all of them are out of the temple. With all of the animals, all of the people, all of the money changers, everyone. Now, it's miraculous how he does this because there are many other accounts in extra-biblical literature of people doing similar things like this, but the Romans coming in because the Jews are saying, help, help, we're being attacked. The Romans come in and they usually execute the man who did these things. It's amazing that Jesus can do this and completely get away with it. The Romans are not seen here. It's probably because what he's doing is not cruel. It might have force in it. It obviously is a forceful act, but it's not cruel. We don't find anybody being hurt. We don't find animals being hurt. We just see Jesus pushing all these people out of the temple. And by the way, as, as we hear what he's going to say, you've, you've turned my father's house into a, a house of merchandise or of trade. It'll ring in our minds of another time that he did this. Um, There are two cleansings of the temple. 
one at the very beginning in the first Passover that Jesus attends, one at the very beginning of his public ministry, which John includes, and one at the very end of his public ministry, um, right before his death on Monday of the Passion Week. We have two cleansing of the temples. We've discussed this before, but the Sanhedrin um, split up into Sadducee, Pharisee, different sects of religion. Um, the, the Sadducees controlled the temple. They owned the temple. And so when Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it out, he starts to tick off the Sadducees. And then for three and a half years, he goes around to synagogues and the Pharisees controlled the synagogues. And he goes around to synagogues and he starts preaching in the synagogues. Don't follow the Pharisaical religion. It's false religion. Follow the gospel. So he starts to tick off the Pharisees and then he comes back in the Passion Week on Monday of the Passion Week and he cleanses the temple again. And that brings the Sadducees and the Pharisees who hated each other, that brings them together to say, we've had enough of this guy. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. But this is the first time that he cleanses the temple. And he's going to do the exact same thing on Monday of the Passion Week in three years. But he's going to say something specific about why he's doing it this time in this way, in this manner. He puts them all out, the money changers, the animals, those selling. Verse 16, those who were selling the doves. He puts them all out. It's not an act of cruelty to people. It's an act of judgment upon a system. He's not being cruel. He's being forceful, but he's not being mean. He's judging a hypocritical system. And so he says, middle of verse 16, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. I want you to just write down a couple of verses. Malachi 3, verse 1. Malachi 3, verse 1. Malachi says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is God speaking as Malachi's writing. I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So he's suddenly going to rush in upon his temple. This is exactly a fulfillment of that passage. Zechariah 14:21. you can write that one down as well. This is actually a very interesting passage because it refers to the millennial kingdom. It refers to when Jesus returns, uh, he will establish a, a reign for a thousand years, and there will be temple activities happening, and it refers to what's going to be happening in the millennial kingdom. But there is a chance that it, before Jesus came, it was a reference to what he would do on the earth, in his public ministry, if they would have accepted him, if he would have been accepted as Messiah. Since he wasn't, it moved to a further prophecy. But the bottom line is, Zechariah 14, verse 21 says, On that day, on the day when Messiah owns the temple, there will be no merchants, no traders, there will be no money lenders, nobody that's working for business in the temple. It speaks of the temple being a place that all nations will come and worship. There will be no commerce. And like I said, now it's referring to the millennial kingdom, but that was a, a prophecy that could have been fulfilled by Jesus if they had accepted him. The bottom line is what he is doing when he says, my father's house should not be a place of business, is he is declaring himself to be God. He's declaring himself to be the messenger sent by God, and he's declaring himself to be God, very God. And everyone would have known this. Write down John 5.18. John 5.18 says this. For this reason, the Jews were seeking to kill him. We're going to get to this, so you'll see it in context when we get to it. But just know, 
the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his father. And they said, if you call God your father, you make yourself equal with God. And so Jesus says, I am. I'm one with God. I am one with God. My father's house. The Jews knew that he was saying that he that Jesus himself, he was saying he was God. The Jews knew that. So he comes in, he takes over. Now, again, we have the synoptic gospel record of the cleansing of the temple in our minds, right? We have take these things away. You are making my father's house a den of thieves when it's supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations. And that's rightfully understood here as well. But this specific words that he's using here are said before that. That'll be three and a half years later. What Jesus is saying here is you have turned what should be a place to worship my father into a place to worship money. You've exchanged what you're worshiping. It used to be it should be my father. And instead you are worshiping money. You've turned it into a place of business. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, this is from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. Some translations say will eat me up. Um, uh, Jesus is so taken aback by people desecrating the holiness and the worship of his father that he's eaten up inside. He can't look on and just say, well, they're doing what's wrong, but it's okay. He has to do something about it. They remembered that. Whether they remembered that right then and there or whether his disciples remembered that later, it's not specified. I like to think they remembered that right then and there and then what they're going to remember about Jesus being raised from the dead is much later. But the bottom line is we see, number one, the cleansing of the temple, a familiar account, account that we know with maybe some new specifics. But Jesus comes in to condemn a system of religion, to judge a man-made system of corruption and a religion by works, And he overturns all of these money changers and throws them out. He throws them out. Number two, the confrontation of the Jews. You can't just do that and get away with it on the Temple Mount. You can't just say, I'm going to take authority here and move everybody. Um, Millions and millions of dollars are being lost by Jesus doing what he's doing. And he's going to do it twice. Um, Josephus tells us there was a man right before the New Testament was written that came in and Um, started to ransack the temple. And he stole over, it would be the equivalent, uh, historians have done the math, it would be the equivalent of over $20 million from the temple. And he left, it's like seven-eighths of the temple tax and the treasury still intact. So do the math on that, over $20 times the seven of the eighth or whatever. You need to talk to Michelle, she'll help you with that. There is lots of money in the temple. It would be as if Jesus... um, would shut down the period for malls and merchants in our day and age from September to January. You can't do business. That's when most of them are doing their commerce, their business. So the Jews are not going to keep silent. Number two, the confrontation of the Jews, verses 18 through 21. Verse 18, the Jews, remember John uses that word not to speak like an ethnic group, like the Jewish people, but a specific group, probably the Sanhedrin, Specifically, it's just Jewish people who rejected Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. So these unbelieving Jews say to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Our common vernacular, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? 
We don't have your union card. We don't know that you work with us. This wasn't approved by the higher-ups. Who do you think you are? What I find fascinating is we do not see, we see a knee-jerk reaction. Um, Jesus did something I didn't like, and I instantly say, how dare you? Um, Who are you to do that? What I find interesting is that there is no, there's no account, there's not even a hint of one of these Jewish people saying, hang on, let's stop. Maybe we're doing something wrong. No question, no introspection. No, this guy claims to be God. He looks like he's God. He acts like he's God. Maybe he's telling us something. And I just find it fascinating that I believe that's the human condition. Whenever we hear something that doesn't agree with what we think, we instantly go, well, who are you to tell me that? Um, Instead of saying, okay, you might be right. Hang on, you might be right. Um, I need to hear you out. The Jews just say, what sign do you have? What sign? Show us a sign that will be your authority. What are they asking for? They're probably asking for a sign like in the Old Testament, God the Father speaking to them, uh, some crazy miracle that would be insanely messianic, which Jesus is going to do and they're not going to believe. Again, the irony is they're saying, they're not saying, get out of here, we're calling the Romans to kick you out and kill you. They're, they're aware enough, this guy's something special, that they say, maybe you do have the ability to perform a sign. Maybe you do have the ability to perform a sign. Maybe we should be listening. But deep down inside, they're asking for something that Jesus is really going to deny them. Write down Matthew 12, 38 through 40. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. We don't have enough time to go to these passages because we have a lot to cover towards the end of this message. But in Matthew 12, something almost identical happens. The, the Pharisees ask, what, what sign do you have? Show us a sign to give us proof of your authority. You're doing crazy things. You have to have a sign. And Jesus says, you are an evil and adulterous generation. I mean, that's, that's harsh. They're asking for a sign. Don't, just give them a sign. They'll believe. So here's my question. What is so wrong with the Jews asking for a sign? Because he's going to condemn it three times in this gospel. What's so wrong with them asking for a sign, asking for proof, and why is this adulterous? Why is it wrong? Let me just give you the answer. Because it's a dodge, it's a trick, it's a ploy. They don't need any more signs to believe what is true. They already have plenty of proof of what is true. They don't need a sign. They need hearts that are changed to receive the truth that they see that is evident, and they need to receive it and believe it. Instead, they're trying to get off of the subject at hand, the heart issue. The heart issue is, Jewish people, will you believe? He just gave them a sign by what he did. And they say, we need another one. We are, we are a people who are very good when we are getting pressed by something at the heart level by saying, uh, what about that? And we go somewhere else. This is going to happen in John 4. When Jesus starts pressing home the issue of the gospel to the woman at the well, she's going to say, "Uh, where should we worship? Um, Instead of saying, okay, let's talk about my heart. Let's talk about what needs to change. She just tries to move the issue somewhere else. Let's let's talk about worship. Let's talk about something else. I don't want to keep talking about my heart. But Jesus isn't going to play that game. 
He's going to dive into their heart and he's going to say, I'm not going to show you a sign. You have enough evidence to believe. The question is, are you going to believe? That's why it's evil. It's evil because it's dodging. It's saying, I know what's true, but I will not believe it until you give me another sign. It's adultery. It's spiritual adultery. Because, to use the imagery, the Jews have another boyfriend, even though they have a husband. They know that Jesus is the bridegroom and they are the bride. They know that. They see I should submit to him. And yet they say, I have another lover. And I'm not sure if I want to go back to my first love. I'm not sure if I want to go to my true love. So give me a sign that would prove to me that you are truly my first husband. Give me a sign that would prove that to me. That's why it's spiritual adultery. They're saying, I have something else and I'm going to cling to it until you defiantly tell me that I'm wrong. Even though Jesus is going to do that time and time again, they want to not believe it. So no matter what he's going to do, they will not believe it. That's why it's interesting. When Jesus rises from the dead, he only goes to people who believed in him. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the Sadducees and say, I told you so. A lot of people think if he had done that, they would have believed in him. Oh, we were wrong. But we know that they wouldn't believe in him because when they found out that he was gone from the tomb, they said... He said he was going to rise from the dead. We don't want to believe that, so let's formulate a lie and pay off our people. That's what Luke, 7, or Luke 16 talks about, um, the, the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to heaven, the rich man goes to hell, and the rich man says, can I at least go back to my family and tell them they need to believe in Jesus? And Jesus' response through Abraham is no, even if you go back and tell them, a man raised from the dead who has seen what you have seen and been where you have been, they will still not believe because why? They didn't believe the scriptures. They didn't believe the law and the prophets. What's going to be interesting is, if you drop down to verse 22, his disciples are going to believe, but they're going to believe what? The scriptures. They're not believing in the sign, They're not even believing in what the sign points to right off the bat, that Jesus is God. They're believing in the scriptures that are saying Jesus is God and Jesus is the only way to be saved because you are a sinner condemned to die for your sins. And if you don't repent and turn from your sins, then Jesus, no matter how much you believe in him, Jesus is not a savior to those who just say, I think you are who you are, but I want to live the way I want to live. So Jesus doesn't play that game. He says in verse 19, it's almost a cryptic statement. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the Jews are thinking he's referring to the temple temple, the actual literal temple. I've heard preachers that say Jesus is saying, he's pointing when he's saying these words, destroy this temple, and he's pointing to himself. I actually don't think he's saying that. I don't think he's pointing to himself, even though he means that, because nobody gets it. Even the disciples don't get it. So if he had said, destroy this temple, the disciples would have gone, well, he's talking about himself. Um, He might even be pointing at the temple, uh, the literal temple. He's giving them an issue of whether they will believe or not believe, regardless of what he's saying. He's giving them a tough saying, and they pick up on it. They take the bait. They say in verse 20, it took 46 years to build this temple. And by that point, Josephus tells us it hadn't hadn't been finished yet. Uh, It won't be finished until 63 A.D., and then seven years later, it's going to be destroyed. Poor, poor people. They finally get it. I mean, this was started 
way back in the B.C. eras, and it gets finished in 63 A.D., and the Jews or the Romans destroy it in 70 A.D. Which, by the way, that's the whole book of Hebrews. I wonder if Hebrews... Hebrews is written because the Jewish people are going back to the temple. They're going back to sacrifices. They're saying Jesus is awesome, but he's not enough. We need to do all these other ritualistic uh, religious things. I wonder if that happened because the temple was finally finished. And they went, you know what? God wouldn't have allowed the temple to be finished if he didn't want us to be worshiping in the temple. We should go back to the temple. I just, I wonder. Hebrews is all about get out of the temple. Don't be in the temple. You don't need the sheep and the goats and all those things. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. And the Jews don't get it so much so that God finally says, we'll just destroy the temple so you can't go there. You can't go there. The bottom line is faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God, not by signs. If you want a, if you want a sign, then you would fall into the category that Jesus calls these people in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation, not satisfied by God's word, but needing more evidence and more proof. This doesn't mean that some people don't have genuine doubts or concerns. It's totally possible to have that. But what it does mean is that the evidence is never going to be final authority in bringing you saving faith. Evidence will never be final authority in bringing you saving faith. The scripture will be the final authority in bringing you saving faith. The scripture, the Holy Spirit, breathing life into you. So Jesus says, here's, here's a, a sign, if you will. I'm going to be killed Verse 21, he's speaking of the temple of his own body. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be destroyed by you. You remember they twist this around um, at his arrest um, when they are judging him, when they are bringing false witnesses against him. They can't even get this right. They say, he used to say, I will destroy the temple, and in three days later I will rebuild it. That's not what he said. He said, you are going to destroy the temple, not me. You are going to destroy it, and I will raise it up. John 10, 11 and 8. Uh, verse 11 and verse 18, Jesus says, I give my life. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep and I will raise it up again. Um, who raised Jesus from the dead? I love that the Bible is clear. Romans 1 says that God, the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 says that God, the Father, raised Jesus from the dead. And here, Jesus says, I will raise it up again. I will raise myself from the dead. And there are other passages that say the same thing. Same as creation. Who created the world? Jesus through the Holy Spirit by God's, the Father's authority and power. It's, it's a beautiful picture of the Trinity. But he's speaking of himself. And verse 22, his disciples remember, remember that. So the Jews seek a sign, but when Jesus gives them a sign, and he's going to give it to them again in the form of Jonah in Matthew 12. He's going to give it to them again of saying three days in the belly of the earth, same way that Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. And then I'll be raised. But they don't inquire about it. They don't ask about it. They wanted a sign right then and there. They didn't get what they wanted, so they are not going to believe. But number three, the belief of the disciples. So we see the cleansing of the temple, the confrontation of the Jews. And number three, the belief of the disciples. This is in verse 22. Even though the Jews will not believe, the disciples do. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. That is so clear by John to say they believe the scripture. It's not they believe the sign of his resurrection. They believe what the sign pointed to, which is the scripture pointed to Messiah having these powers, being able to do these things because he's God, very God. They believed in the scriptures, not in the signs. The Jews were seeking a sign to believe in the sign, 
And the disciples believe in the scriptures, not in the sign. They let the sign point them to the scriptures. So that's the cleansing of the temple. So we, we look around and we go, okay, we are not in a temple. We do not have sacrifices. Um, we don't have money changers, I, I don't think. I mean, maybe if you put in, you know, Filipino money, maybe we'll have to change it out at some uh, money changer. But we don't have money changers here. We're not um, corruptly with extortion. and We're not doing those things. So what does this passage say for us? It says many things. Um, let me just give you two off the bat. Number one, it tells us that what God promises to do, he's going to do. He, Jesus said, you destroy the temple, I will raise it in three days. And guess what? Three days after he died, yep, he was raised. What God promises that he will do, he will do. Uh, a second thing is the, the Jewish kickback. Um, when something happens that offends your heart deep down to the core, can we just, as a church, fight against the knee-jerk reaction to get offended and to say, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, let's, let's be more gracious than that. Um, Jesus, I, I love the way that Jesus does this. Jesus does this with the disciples where they say, uh, we want to ask you a question, and before we ask it to you, we want you to promise us that whatever we're about to ask, you would say yes. No one in their right mind would make that dumb of an answer. Like, okay, sure, I promise to do whatever you're about to ask me. No one would do that. And Jesus, in his grace, could have just looked at these disciples and said, how stupid can you be? You've walked with me for three years now. And he says, what is it that you would ask of me? So he doesn't say, yes, I promise that. But he also doesn't shoot him down. Like, uh, no, come back to me when you have a better way of asking. Like, he says, what is it that you would ask of me? Let's not be like the unbelieving Jewish people in this account and through the rest of this gospel when Jesus confronts their ideologies, when Jesus confronts what they think to be true, they instantly go, you're wrong, we're right. That's another implication from this. There's so many implications. We could talk about prosperity gospels in here um, so much. But here's the bottom line, okay? Just one point for conclusion of application. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. We could say it this way. We need to examine ourselves individually and corporately. We need to examine ourselves individually and corporately. I'm going to quote some verses for you. You can write these down and look them up on your own time. 1 Peter 4:17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with the household of God. We need to judge ourselves rightly. What is the household of God? You ask Peter, excuse me, what's the household of God? That's kind of ambiguous. What do you mean? Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are God's household. So believers make up God's household. So we can say this is the house of God. We are of the household of God. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34, Paul says that if you don't drink the cup of communion rightly, you drink judgment upon yourself. Verse 31 is key. He says, if we judge ourselves rightly, we won't be judged. How do we judge ourselves rightly? We judge ourselves according to the word of God. Are we living this way? Are we believing this? 
Are we loving the things that God loves? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says, Test yourselves, examine yourselves, judge yourselves to see if you are even in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you're failing the test? Examine yourself. Now I know last week's message is a much easier fun message to hear. And that's what I love about just going through the Bible, verse by verse, book by, by book. Um, I'm not picking this topic. It's what was picked for me this morning in this gospel account. And so I'm not trying to harshly, cruelly question every one of your motives. The bottom line is I'm not going to. People do this a lot. Good motive, you know, Bible-believing Christians do this a lot. They see Jesus. He made a, a, a cord or a whip of cords and he drove out the ungodliness in the temple. Let's do that too. Let's make a, a, a whip of cords and drive out the ungodliness in our people. I can promise you I'm never going to do that. Um, that's Jesus's job and now it's the Holy Spirit's job to the word of God. He's the one who has the whip and he will drive sin out of your hearts. I need that whip in my heart. So I'm not here to say, now you examine yourself and I don't need to. I'm here to say individually as members of the body of Christ, if you profess Christ and corporately as a church, we need to test ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. So how can we do that with this passage, this specific passage? How can we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith? I have four areas that we can examine ourselves based on this passage, okay? Four areas of self-examination. Number one, do you love what God loves and do you hate what God hates? Um, True love must have inside of it true hatred. We've talked about this before. Why is Jesus righteously angry in cleansing the temple? Why does he drive people out? Why is he filled with zeal so much so that he becomes righteously indignant over what's happening? I love the answer. It's because of his love. Zeal for my father's house and his holiness have consumed me. He loved God so much that he could not look upon sin with indifference. He had to do something about it. So if we have an image of Jesus in our mind, that we just say God is love and that's it. With no anger or wrath, first of all, we're misunderstanding love. If you love downtrodden, destitute people, you're going to hate the situations and circumstances that got them to that place. If you love Jewish people and you say, I think the Holocaust wasn't that bad, do you really love Jewish people? True, genuine love has to have inside of it true, genuine hatred for what would offend what you love. What offended what Jesus loves? It's God's holiness. If God's holiness is offended, Jesus says, I love that, therefore I must do something. His anger, righteous anger, is rooted in the religious irreverence of the Jews towards God the Father. They loudly, publicly proclaimed, we want holiness, we want to be a people that follow God, and they denied it in their practice. As one writer says, our Lord's whip opposes anything that detracts from the communication of God's glory, especially in corporate worship. So do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Do you call sin, sin? Do you call righteousness, righteousness? Do you agree with God in what he says? Or do you make your own standard for what is right and what is wrong? Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Number two, 
Not just do you love what God loves or hate what God hates. Number two, do you have a biblical view of God or a flippant view of God? This kind of ties into what we talked about with Family Bible Hour this morning. It's easy, it's, it's natural to fall into flippancy when it comes to sober things. It's natural to do that. We have phrases that betray our false view of God. I've never heard these phrases from anybody here. If you said these phrases, I'm not picking on you because I've never heard you say these things. But I just want to ask. Somebody refers to God as the man upstairs or the big man in the sky. Is that who God is? Um, First of all, he's not a man. God is God. We are man. But just to say, he's upstairs. He's attainable if we walk up a flight of stairs. That betrays what we believe about God. That's why I've had this conversation with some of you before. You're not going to hear me joke about hell, and you're not going to hear me joke about heaven. Those are both terrible, terrifying realities. Terror-filled realities. In two different senses of the word, but awful, awe-filled realities. And if I trivialize terrible realities like that, I do not do you a, a good service in your own soul. So my question to you is, do you have a biblical view of God? Does Jesus doing something like this in this account say, that doesn't fit with my Jesus? What about Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that says, Jesus looked upon the Pharisees with anger in his heart. What about Matthew 23, 27, and 33 that says, he says to the Pharisees, you are a brood of vipers, you are worse than your father the devil, and you will not be able to escape the sentence and wrath of hell. Do you have a biblical view of Jesus? Again, I, I think we all struggle with that. That's why A.W. Tozer wrote the book, The Knowledge of the Holy. In the preface, he explains why he wrote it. He says this, With our loss of the sense of majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and con- consciousnesses of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, God, mean next to nothing in the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century, he writes. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, says it this way. I love this. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate techniques, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources by bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon his church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. So again, my question is, do you love what God loves and hates? Do you hate what God hates? And secondly, do you have a true biblical view of God or do you have a flippant man-made view of God? Number three, is your worship of God one that is filled with reverence and awe or indifference and hypocrisy? Is your worship of God one that is filled with reverence and awe or indifference and hypocrisy? You see, the The Jews didn't hate what God hated. They loved what God hated. They were flippant with 
who God was. And then this one specifically, they were indifferent and hypocritical to worshiping God. In the temple, they were fine with corruption and hypocrisy. Kent Hughes says this, Our hearts can become like that outer court of the temple of Jerusalem. Even while we sit in church, the bazaars of suburbia can be spinning through our heads. We may be thinking about the next business deal we are going to close, athletic events that would await us, and shopping trips or parties with our friends. How do we worship God when we enter this, this facility? If a Gentile had entered the temple and saw what Jesus was seeing, what would their view of God be? God loves money, right? That's their view of God. God loves money and he's fine with corruption. 1 Corinthians 14 says the exact opposite. Outsiders should come and see. Paul uses that word. People who are outside of the household of God should come in to our church services and see our awe of who God is. And that saves people. Us being filled with wonder and awe, saying this man is fully God, very God. That saves people. Number four. Finally, do you welcome the cleansing of Jesus or do you question your need for it? Do you welcome the cleansing of Christ or do you question your need for it? Jesus still cleanses us today. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He cleanses us today with the whip of his holiness and his blood and his grace. Do you welcome that or do you kick against it? Kent Hughes says, let us be known for our hatred of sin and our hatred of idolatry. We must not apply the whip to others. Please, Christ Bible Church, do not apply the whip to others. Let God take care of others. Don't play the Holy Spirit. He's way more powerful than you could possibly comprehend. And he can apply the whip of God's truth and God's grace to others. Let's apply it to ourselves. Let us be people so zealous, so overflowing, so burning, so full of him that nothing else can intrude. Do you know what the effects would be? We will have reverence for God in our lives. People will see us that we are genuine and real. It will affect our worship wherever we are, and our own church will become a house of prayer for all of the nations. The grace of God will go forth. So may God deliver us from idolatry, any lower concept of him, than we see in our awesome, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient lion and lamb. And so I just, I ask all of us, if Jesus were to walk in these doors, would he have cleansing to do? Would he have cleansing to do corporately? Would he have cleansing to do in the leadership? Would he have things in our leadership in this church that he would say, this is not right. This is not honoring to me. This is not glorifying to me. This is just about you showing forth yourself and spotlighting yourself. What would he say to us individually? I think a better way to ask that is, what has he said to us individually? He cleansed the temple back then. He still cleanses the temple today. He still goes through our midst in the household of God and says, as he does in Revelation 2 and 3, unless you change, I will destroy you. I will pluck you out of the lampstand and and blow out the candle and you will be gone. So judgment does start with the household of God. But before we sing, and we're going to sing about the holiness of God, and it's going to lead us to the wonder of Jesus even dying for us. Why would he do that since we are so far from uh, lovely and, and desirable? Why would God do that? He has an amazing love for us. 
And it's because of that that we can sing, we can glorify him. But we just need to stop again. And we need to ask the question, have you dealt with your sin the way that Jesus has dealt with it? Have you called it what it is? Have you confessed sin before God and said, you know what? I realize Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of my sin is death. Everyone deserves that punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life. This is the beauty of what Jesus does on the cross. Instead of driving us out of his presence, God drives Jesus out of his presence and says, Jesus, I turn my back on you. I forsake you. What should happen to Patrick happens to Jesus because all of Patrick's sin is placed on Jesus And Jesus is driven out of the temple, so to speak. Jesus becomes sin for me so that I can become the righteousness of God in him. So if we understand the holiness of God rightly, it will bring us to awe and to fear and to reverence. But then when we understand the gospel rightly, it will cause us to rejoice that Jesus has taken my punishment and I will gladly follow him. He has taken my judgment And now I will gladly serve him for the rest of my life. Is that the Jesus you follow? Or is there a different Jesus that you follow? Let's follow the lion-like lamb and the lamb-like lion. Even now as we sing, let's follow our amazing Savior. God, I pray that your spirit would do a work in our hearts even as we sing. I pray for any in this room that Believe that you are who you claim you are, but don't follow you. Don't worship you and obey you. God, I pray that this would be a reminder to all of us that there is such a thing as false belief. I pray that we'd be like the disciples who don't believe the signs, but believe the scriptures. And I pray that now as we sing, we would judge ourselves rightly. Ask those tough questions, knowing that there is grace at the foot of the cross if we would turn from sin and we would follow you. May we enjoy your holiness now. May we see the provision made at the cross and may we glorify you, our Savior, Jesus Christ.